This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for people living with pain, their families, friends and healthcare professionals through campaigns, these programmes, literature, research projects and its helpline. Now, it's accepted that supported self-management is a powerful tool to help reduce the impact of chronic pain on daily life. But a substantial number of callers to our helpline speak of difficult relations with their GP and a perceived ignorance of the benefits and techniques of self-management. With this in mind, Pain Concern obtained funding from the Health and Social Care Alliance and the Edinburgh and Lothian's Health Foundation to undertake a two-year project into the barriers to self-management of chronic pain in primary care. The first phase of the project, that is gathering the data, the evidence that there is indeed a problem and the extent of it, is now complete. So this edition of Airing Pain will look into the background and findings of the research. Katie Gordon is Pain Concerns researcher for the project. We basically found four kind of main categories of barriers and then under each one of those categories there was various sub-themes. So the four categories were the first one was the patient healthcare professional consultation. So things that happened as part of that consultation that maybe become a barrier to self-management. That was the first kind of main category. The second one was what we called patient experience. So their sort of experience of pain and the emotions that might be attached to having chronic pain might be one barrier. The third category was called limited treatment options. So that kind of covered the tendency for people to or doctors and patients as well to expect their pain would be treated with medication and nothing else um, so they didn't really look into some self-management strategies that they might want to use and then the fourth category was organisational constraints so that was the sort of thing like really short appointment times very long waiting lists that makes it harder for people to do self-management. How have you devised the subjects the topics that you will study? We had this sort of anecdotal evidence that something was happening in primary care that was making it difficult for people to self-manage. Um, so some anecdotal evidence from the helpline and that sort of sowed the seed to get the ball rolling and then, yeah, presented the idea to some advisors who we've got for pain concern who are GPs and psychologists and they thought that it would be a really interesting topic to look into so that we kind of gathered momentum with it that way and really sort of refined what we should look into. So we had two different sets of focus groups. So we had patient focus groups or healthcare professional focus groups. So overall we had 18 focus groups and um, spoke to 101 participants, which was 38 healthcare professionals. That was mostly GPs and physiotherapists, um, some practice nurses, some occupational therapists and just one community pharmacist. And then it was 59 patients and carers as well. That's Katie Gordon, the project researcher. One of those advisors she mentioned is psychologist Martin Dunbar. He's clinical lead of the Glasgow Pain Management Programme. It partly came out of my experience of, of seeing the patients who come through the pain management programme here and then talking about the difficulties they've had in, for example, exercising. Uh, and the help that they might have had in primary care. Uh, a frequent comment from, from patients is that they, they wish they'd known all this stuff years ago. They will often say that they'd tried physiotherapy and uh, you know, encouraged to exercise more, but frequently their experience was that they were being asked to do too much uh, and that was flaring up their pain. And as a consequence, 
it wouldn't be surprising if people rejected exercise then as, as being too dangerous or too sore or too difficult. Certainly that was one of the things that got me thinking. And I, and I think because it's a, it's a medically managed problem at most stages of, uh, of somebody's pain career, if you like, the emphasis is always on the medical approaches and they're frequently limited. There's a, there's a, there's a limit to the, the number of analgesic medicines there are and, and they frequently come with, with uh, their own difficulties as well of side effects and so on. So uh, I think it was thinking about what might help people earlier and why, why aren't they being helped earlier. I was aware that that wasn't working very well and I think rather than just diving in with a solution, I think, I think we thought we need to know a lot more about this. Martin Dunbar, the NHS in Scotland recommends supported self-management for chronic pain in their guidelines for patients and healthcare professionals. So what does self-management really mean? Dr Graham Kramer is a GP in Montrose. He's seconded to the Scottish Government as National Clinical Lead for Self-Management and Health Literacy. Self-management really is the health and well-being, the way people live their lives when they're away from a healthcare professional, which actually is 24-7 and their contact with a healthcare professional is just a very tiny fraction of that time. And I suppose their contacts with the healthcare professional is very much about what the healthcare professional can do to support that person to self-manage, to live all the other times that they're not with the healthcare professional um, as well and as productively that they can in, in a way that they wish. You work for the Scottish Government. Mm -hmm. Why does the Scottish Government see this as an important point? One of the, the main reasons is we know that um, people who um, are unable to be in the driving seat of their care tend to not only live better, live healthily, um, they often have less exacerbations of their chronic condition, and they often require less medication, and they often require um, less hospital utilisation. And fundamentally, I suppose, in a sort of health economics term, it saves money. And so if you can invest in supporting self-management, not only do you have improved personal outcomes, you get improved medical outcomes as well. So it's a win-win and you also get a much healthier functioning health economy. It seems to be a no-brainer. Yeah. Why do we need somebody like you to push it, to emphasise it? It's a very good question and I think one of the main reasons is that healthcare has evolved over you know, ever since the early part of the 20th century from huge successes in the advance of medical science and it's been fundamentally fantastic at curing acute illnesses that people would have died from previously with the, you know, invention of antibiotics and uh, anaesthesia. Um, we've managed to um, immunisation programmes. We've managed to save huge amounts of life. A byproduct of that is that although we're saving lives, when people are living with chronic conditions, the whole healthcare system has been designed around the acute model, the acute curative model, and trying to look after people and support people living with long-term conditions is incredibly difficult, almost impossible to do well in that acute model. And so what we're needing to see is a transformation to what I call the curative compliant model 
of healthcare that we currently work into, in to one which is um, more focused on um, empowerment and enablement. That is a fundamental change. It, it challenges a huge amount of values and attitudes of um, healthcare professionals. We are all trained in being doctors, or I'm certainly trained as being a doctor. Um, I haven't been trained in being more of a coach and enabler as a healer, and that requires an entirely different skill set as well. And that was Graham Kramer. Here's researcher Katie Gordon again. Doctors and physios, actually quite a few, said they didn't really feel like they got that much training in chronic pain and also self-management techniques as well. And there was a particular... The groups that we ran in Edinburgh, those physiotherapists had done some kind of extra-specific chronic pain training and felt like they really benefited from it and felt much more confident dealing with the patients that they had. So training was one that came under limited treatment options. So the fourth one was organisational constraints, which I think would apply to any condition, not just chronic pain. So appointment time, specifically for the doctors, you know, eight, ten minutes maybe. And even the doctors who were really bought into self-management would say, I actually don't have time to talk about chronic pain in the detail it needs. I don't have time to talk about self-management. So at the end of an appointment, I give a prescription. Long waiting lists as well, particularly physiotherapy and psychology. So patients were waiting a long, long time. In that time, their pain is probably getting worse. So the the professionals that would be able to help teach them about self-management is, you know, they're not seeing them for such a long period of time that they can't get started with self-management while they're waiting nine months to go and see their physiotherapist. Um, long waiting list. And then the, other, the third one in that category was sort of inconsistency. So possibly different doctors giving different messages about self-management depending on their own kind of opinions on it. And patients just feeling that they would get sent somewhere for a scan and that they wouldn't find any problem in the specific thing that they were looking for so you'd get sent back to your GP they would refer you to somewhere else they didn't find anything specific patients just felt like they got sort of each specialist looked at one single thing ruled it out sent you back so it's that real kind of search for a diagnosis first of all and then search for a cure and a lot of the time there's not really a cure. So that makes it worse. So every time you get sent somewhere, you get a little bit of hope. Oh, maybe they're going to find out what's wrong with me. Maybe they're going to be able to find a cure. Nothing happens, so you feel a little bit lower again. And just a kind of ongoing cycle of getting sent around and no one being able to actually find a cure. And at that point, you have to say, probably never going to find a cure, but we can manage this as best we can. I think one of the difficult conversations I have with patients, my patients, is getting them to some sort of acceptance that I don't particularly have a solution, but trying to be very positive that I think that there's a lot to, that we can do to help and that we can help by working through this problem together. And I think that I want to emphasise that is, is that I see myself, and often a lot of my patients that I have, we have a very strong positive relationship anyway, so we can begin to use that and build on it to try and work through the quite intolerable suffering um, that they're experiencing so that we can find ways of reducing that suffering and allowing them to move forward and live their life as fully as they possibly can within the limitations that, that they have. That's GP Dr Graham Kramer. Now, what the research indicates is that yes, patients in our sample are frustrated at primary care level. But so are the GPs. Martin Dunbar again. Time is part of that frustration, I think. 
But I think it's not knowing what to do, how to, how to move people on, I think is probably one of the things that, that would be most helpful. And I think if that's done clumsily, uh, and I'm sure that is done clumsily sometimes, then uh, those consultations can become difficult uh, and you know, GPs' experiences then can be coloured by uh, a few difficult consultations and you know, it puts them off, I guess. What advice would you give to GPs in those situations? Well, I do think GPs know a lot of this already. Um, certainly, the whole field of motivational interviewing can be really helpful here. It's, it's putting these things in a certain way to people, putting the onus on them, letting them provide the answers to their problems, um, rather than dictating to people who already in their own mind, they, they're aware of the difficulties in making changes in their own life. Uh, and so somebody suggesting that they should go swimming three times a week when people may, may have tried that in the past. And I think if you use kind of motivational interviewing approaches, you'll, you'll understand that that's been a difficulty and, and get people to think about what things might get, help them to get around those problems. So I think, I think GPs are often trained in using motivational interviewing uh, approaches anyway, more and more uh, these days. But I think it's something that you need refreshers in, you need to keep on top of, I think a couple of days of training in, in how to encourage patients to make behavioural change isn't probably enough. What we find a lot, and all the healthcare professionals was like, you know, we really, we want to help, you know, that's why we went into this as a profession, but there is only so much they can do in 10 minutes, and with chronic pain, they're probably never really going to be able to find a cure. And yeah, that was quite interesting. So the healthcare, the effect that the patient had on the healthcare professional's emotions was something that I hadn't really thought about before, but quite often they say, well, I, f I feel like I'm letting the patient down because we haven't been able to find that cure and all those sort of emotions that are attached with them that they're also thinking well I'm the doctor so I should be able to fix this. Sometimes they talked about chronic pain patients being quite perhaps a difficult group to deal with and that was one of the reasons why because they're not able to do the sort of job that they feel that they really should be able to do. Is one of the barriers to self-management, the fact that, as you're saying, you didn't have that training, you don't have the time in a 10-minute appointment to look at everything in the patient's life. Is, is that a barrier to self-management? A huge, a huge barrier. As I say, the system doesn't cater for it at the moment. I think there needs to be a, a fundamental change. And I, one of the reasons I've gone into this job is um, it's come about from an interest in uh, looking after people with long-term conditions um, within primary care and all we've been able to focus on is the medical management of people with long-term conditions and it's very very limited I think it's creating a huge burden of complexity um, in terms of multiple medications and things for for people uh, the evidence to suggest that it's socializing um, our patients into being passive recipients of care, almost sort of socialising them into being a relationship of learned helplessness on the healthcare system. By that you mean patients go to doctor to be fixed? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And of course there's frustration on both sides when we're faced with a, an unfixable problem. And we can actually end up doing more harm than good trying to try and fix unfixable problems with our current medical approaches. It requires more than medicine. And I don't think that the current system is able to cater for that, those 
additional things that people with chronic conditions need. It was really, really common for people to say, oh, it was me to feel like it was all in my head. Um, people saying that they felt like if they'd gone for a scan and they didn't find a lump or, or something, then it was basically, well, there's nothing wrong with you, just kind of go away, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that, that was really, really common. And then on the flip side of that, though, the doctors said that they often found it quite difficult to talk to patients, perhaps. So there's not maybe a specific medical reason um, that they can pinpoint for having their pain. So if the doctor started exploring kind of wider aspects of their life and some of the psychological aspects, that was a very difficult conversation to have with the patient because as soon as you start talking about that sort of thing, the patient would be like, he doesn't believe me, he said it's all in my brain. So quite an interesting kind of contrast between the two sets of focus groups that we ran. So the doctors were saying we can understand why patients think that's what we're saying, but it's actually not what we're saying, but we do need to explore the kind of wider psychological aspects of pain. I've certainly never encountered a healthcare professional that says, I think you're making this up or malingering. Um, I don't think they do that. And often people turn around and say that, you know, the doctors turn around to me and said, it's all in your head. And I, and I, I don't think doctors do turn around and say it's all in your head, but I think that's often what people hear. And so it becomes really, really complex. And then people begin to think that they're not being heard or understood. And I think it... It, it ultimately can easily slide into a very dysfunctional relationship and a dysfunctional experience um, and frustration and anger with the healthcare system that they can't be fixed. And that's a real, real challenge, a real, real challenge. And it's how you begin to move people on and, and begin to discuss with them that, that, it's, that they may have a problem that we can't fix, that they may have to live with for the rest of their days that may affect them and it's going to completely fundamentally change the way they see themselves and their lives and their relationships and their work and everything else. It can be, can be quite a devastating conversation to have but at the same time it's a conversation where you want to also convey to the person in front of you that there's a huge amount that can be done that can be gained through supporting self-management and helping people address all the other aspects in their life as well so that they can achieve what they want to achieve. Those consultations can become difficult and I think, I think when people have had pain for a long time and they've only had limited uh, benefit from medical management, they can become a bit cynical and a bit wary and a bit concerned that they may be being fobbed off. So I think it's, it's a bit of a two-way street and I think managing those difficult conversations is maybe something that uh, people like myself, uh, you know, secondary care uh, pain specialists could help with. One of the comments from, from the research was some patients want to please their doctors. That's true, yeah. Uh, they, they want to convey that they're compliant with the instructions that the doctor's giving them. They don't want to report difficulties. They don't want to be seen as difficult as somebody who's not trying. Uh, and I think that, that's true across lots of aspects of self-management in, in pain conditions is that self-management's difficult. And, you know, they've been given a simple, clear instruction to exercise more. Why haven't they been able to do it? They'll maybe blame themselves. They, they don't want to be seen as somebody who's not trying. Martin Dunbar, clinical lead of the Glasgow Pain Management Programme. Graham Kramer again. It's a two-way street. It, it, as I say, it's a fundamental shift in the relationship. It requires, um, I suppose, healthcare professionals to be less what I call parental in their approach to their patients. And it's a fundamental sea change for the role that the patient traditionally sees them as playing. And, and that can be 
as challenging, if not more challenging, I think, for some people. But it seems to be when you can get that um, transformational shift in both the healthcare professional and the patient, the person with the chronic condition, that's when the potential of self-management is, is, is released and that's when you, we see the best results. So how do you do that? How do you bring the two sides together? M many ways, there's no simple answer, but I think for um, healthcare professionals we need to reflect, have space to reflect on our own values and what we're doing. I think we need to have more training in having these different types of conversations with our patients. I went to a workshop recently, a group of very experienced GPs, and we were looking at changing the approach to management of people with diabetes. The doctors found it very, very hard to change from their traditional role of being in control. And they were trying not to be, and they, they, they couldn't help leaping in at certain times and taking control, asking close questions, for instance, trying to set the agenda rather than encouraging the person to set their own agenda. And that's years of training, years of medical enculturation, if you like. That's the way we've done it. For people, how you increase their activation, I'm not sure I like that word, but how they become engaged in this new side of the relationship. I think some of the wins are around peer support, I think that's very enabling when people see people like them taking on that new role. That's very important. So peer support, structured education is important, but I would advocate that peer-delivered structured education is probably much more effective than professional-delivered structured education. And that's where voluntary or third-sector charitable organisations, like Pain Concern in fact, can have such a valuable role. But what the research shows is that some GPs still need convincing. Our patient groups really, really valued third sector support groups. And the healthcare professionals were sometimes a little bit more wary about referring patients, well, not referring, but signposting patients to these groups because a whole host of reasons they didn't really know what the groups covered. Because they're often run by charities, they could never be sure that they were an ongoing thing. I guess some people don't go to support groups because they don't want to, for want of a better word, wallow in their pain with other miserable people. Well, yeah, that's right. And that was one of the things that the healthcare professionals did have some concern about. Are they signposting people to groups that almost collude and then agree that... Oh, I don't want to do that because of my pain. And then someone else would say, yeah, you shouldn't do that because of your pain. So that kind of collusion against things that they maybe not do. But having been to the support groups, I didn't really see any kind of evidence of that. Like the support groups were really positive And actually, I think we're a good vehicle for getting people to self-manage because they just, they shared tips about, well, that worked for me and this worked for me and that sort of thing. So it was quite a, a good contrast between the patient groups and the healthcare professional groups in that respect. One of the responses from the survey was that some GPs are very, very loath to get their patients involved with third sector organisations because it's losing control. They don't know what advice the, the patient is going to come back with, say, well, doctor, you know, I want it done this way. Yeah. I don't think we need to be worried about what people may be told or any false expectations that they may get from out with the health service because they'll get that anyway. 
And I think giving people information so that they have um, exactly the same information about them that their healthcare professional has. So it completely levels the playing field. Now, some of that information may need to be presented in a more person-friendly, understandable format. You know, the, the information I have about somebody would be meaningless to them, it would be gobbledygook. But if, if we can present the same information in more meaningful ways, I think that would go a, a long way to levelling the playing field. And another key thing is before people are prepared to see themselves in that role, they will need to have a lot of perhaps emotional and psychological support as well. And I think that's a very important fundamental need for a lot of people. I think there needs to be a period of acceptance that they actually have a, a long-term problem for which there isn't a cure that they're going to have to live with for the rest of their life, which can be a huge ask for a lot of people because people are wanting to get back to the life they previously had. You know, the whole narrative of their life has fundamentally changed. So I suppose what it involves is some sort of support to get them off that narrative of wanting to go back to where they were to a narrative of acceptance of where they currently are and begin to look at meaning. I think that's a very important thing that, that we need to help people do is find meaning in, in, in how they are and how they can begin to move forward. The business of somebody accepting a long-term condition, a chronic condition, that needs expert communication skills from the GP, from the health professional. You're talking about not letting the patient see the notes, but translating the notes. Mm -hmm. That has to be done very expertly, not to spook a patient. And it's really difficult. I've been interested in this for 20 years or so, and I wouldn't begin to think that I'm any good at it. I think it is incredibly difficult. As, as a, a healthcare professional, I, in my training, um, six years at medical school, I have learnt an entirely new language, um, which has now become my first language almost. Um, they say that the average medical student learns more new words than the average French language student would learn. It's a whole new language. And I've probably spent the next 20 years after graduating from medical school trying to unlearn that language and begin to understand and use the language that people most commonly speak in. And the only way of le learning that language is, is by listening to the voice of people and patients. And I think one of the things that's missing in our medical education and needs to be more of is actually the input of, of people living with the lived experience of long-term conditions and us hearing their language. That's Dr Graham Kramer, the Scottish Government's National Clinical Lead for Self-Management and Health Literacy. I'll just remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgment available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. So that's the background to our Barriers to Self-Management in Primary Care project. As part of the project, we've produced a series of six supporting videos, each one featuring an issue raised in the research. So patients and leading healthcare professionals in the field of pain share their experiences and offer advice on self-management, 
coping with the emotional impact of pain, medical management of your condition, GP consultations and pain management programmes. All these and links to resources and of course the research itself is on our website which is painconcern.org.uk. Last words to project researcher Katie Gordon. I actually got a really nice email from one of the physios who'd participated in a focus group and she said, oh, off the back of your report, I have changed my practice and I'm just trying to work a little bit harder and listen a little bit more. So that was really nice. Like, I was really pleased with that. And I was like, well, if nothing, if one, one physio was perhaps listening a little bit more than she used to, I think that's a pretty good, good result. But yeah, so we're trying to send it out to as many people as possible and just raise awareness, for one thing, um, and help and hopefully use that to change practice. We've got another email from someone who'd participated in and said she was hoping to set up sort of community pain groups in Rothsey, and she thinks the report will give her kind of a good backing to do that so she'll be able to say these are some of the reasons that we should be doing this. So the evidence is there. Yes. It's up to people to use it. Yeah. So I always think knowledge of what the barriers might be has to be the first step to overcoming some of those barriers. So hopefully the report will give the people the knowledge and they might be able to use it to overcome the barriers.